the Pope names the new head of the Vatican's doctrinal office. What should we make of the appointment? And how has the news been received in Rome? The National Catholic Register's Edward Penton reports. What does the former head of the office think of the Pope's new choice to be guardian of Catholic doctrine? Cardinal Gerhard Mueller shares his thoughts. And at the southern U.S. border, Chinese migrants are coming across in record numbers. Asian affairs expert Gordon Chang is here with analysis. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's begin. Pope Francis has named a new head of the Vatican's powerful and influential doctrinal office, Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez. He replaces Jesuit Cardinal Luis Ladaria as head of this dicastery for the doctrine of faith, as it's now called. Here to tell us about this significant appointment and how it's being received at the Vatican is Rome correspondent for the National Catholic Register, Edward Penton. Ed, thanks for being here. What is the reaction in Rome to this appointment of Archbishop Fernandez? Uh, well, there's a mix of, of really uh, shock and, uh, and concern among uh, many, I think, but also, of course, those close to Francis uh, are welcoming it. They think it's it's a great step forward. It's He's known to have been very uh, close to Francis in the way he thinks uh, for some time. And, of course, he he drafted uh, some of the most contentious parts of Amoris Laetitia, the Pope's apostolic exhortation on the Synod and the family. And he's been very close to Francis throughout uh, his pontificate. So I think those close to Francis are very supportive, but others are, are as I say, very concerned. I one uh, one senior church uh, churchman said it was a catastrophe, um, and uh, especially considering he has a past of uh, dubious theology. In fact, he had a file on him in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, a file of concern about his theology, uh, which I put in a piece today out in the National Catholic Register. Yeah. Uh, you know, when the Pope invited Archbishop uh, Fernandez to be the prefect of the congregation, he had this to say in his letter. As prefect of the dicastery for the doctrine of faith, I entrust to you a task that I consider invaluable. It has as its main purpose to safeguard the teaching that comes from the faith to give reasons for our hope and not as an enemy who critiques and condemns. Ed, what are we to make of the Pope's words here? And does this signal a new direction or a new focus uh, on what the former Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith once did, protect and defend the deposit of faith? Well, it's it's the it's a end, really, of a trend which we've seen for the past few years where uh, a lot of the uh, theologians around the world who, who would normally have been corrected uh, for errors tend to have been left off the hook. And I think... It's, uh, this this appointment very much wants to continue that and perhaps make it stronger so that those who, who do teach error aren't disciplined in the way that they used to be. Uh, and as Pope Francis says in the letter, uh, you know, he wants a different kind of approach. He wants to have that more, as he would put it, a sort of open and freer approach to, to theology, less sort of mm -hmm. dr driven 
ironically by doctrine, but more by pastoral practice. And this has been a, a, a feature of this pontificate, of course, for the past 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Ed, uh, Archbishop Fernandez replaces Jesuit Cardinal Luis Ladaria, who is 79, beyond the usual retirement age. Was Fernandez among the names being discussed uh, for this position? And if this appointment was completely out of the blue, uh, would that indicate that Fernandez was chosen specifically by Pope Francis without consultation? Well, this is what I've heard, that he, he was chosen without consultation. Um, and I think you're right. It's because he is a he has been a close friend of, of the Pope. Uh, I understand that it's also connected with the recent appointment of the Archbishop of Buenos Aires and the fact that uh, Archbishop Fernandez wasn't given that. Uh, I was told that this is why uh, he's been given another prime position, as a, not as compensation, but really as a sort of uh, to even things out. Uh, and so, so yes, I think in that sense, it, it wasn't uh, unexpected. But as we know, there was rumours of other candidates earlier in the year or last year. Yeah. This, there was a particular German bishop who uh, cardinals actually made their concerns known to the Pope about him. Uh, and so he backed down. Uh, but some say that, in fact, Archbishop Fernandez is more concerning than the German bishop uh, uh, because of his past views and and the record he has in theology. Mm. Ed, back in uh, 2015, Archbishop Fernandez gave an interview that certainly presaged what we're seeing now, not only with this appointment, but with the Synod on Synodality. He, he said the Pope goes slow because he wants to be sure that the changes have a deep impact. The slow pace is necessary to ensure the effectiveness of the changes. He knows there are those hoping that the next Pope will turn everything back around. If you go slowly, it's more difficult to turn things back. You have to realize that he's aiming at reform that is irreversible. If one day he should sense that he's running out of time and he doesn't have enough time to do what the Spirit is asking him, you can be sure he will speed up, end quote, prophetic words. And Fernandez is expected now to be elevated to cardinal at the next consistory. What is the mood in Rome, given the speed with which Pope Francis does now seem to be moving, not only with this appointment, but with the synod and the appointment of people to that synod and the issues that are now up for consideration? Yes, well, this seems to be very much sort of securing of his legacy, Raymond. I think uh, he's been accelerating in the past few months in terms of changes. Uh, interestingly, are his appointments, uh, not just Archbishop Fernandez, but the age of, of these new bishops. Archbishop Fernandez is only 61. Uh, the, other, the Archbishop of Buenos Aires, I think, is in his late 50s and others. So he wants these bishops to last a long time in order to, to secure that that change and the, as a, or some would put it a revolution uh, so he's he's making these changes he's he's putting them into place well in time for for when he uh, when he dies of course um, and of course his health isn't that good so he may be concerned that uh, time is running out mm. and he wants to get these put in place quickly and of course for the synod coming up that's the key part as well and with uh, archbishop fernandez in a key position probably become a cardinal He's likely to have a key role also in the Synod, maybe this year, but certainly for the final uh, session of the Synod next year. Hmm. I have to ask you about that book written by Archbishop Fernandez back in the 1990s when he was a priest. It was titled, Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing. Now, the Archbishop recently called this oddly titled book, A Pastor's Catechesis for Teens 
and not a theology book. Now, Ed, that, that seems a very bizarre subject to be covered by a priest writing for teens. But uh, he chalks up the criticism to anti-Francis forces. But the work is no longer listed as part of his official bi bibliography. How is Fernandez's work viewed by others in Rome? It's surely controversial. Yes, oh, definitely. And uh, I haven't read uh, his other works, but I think they. what I've heard is that they are uh, also uh, problematic in some senses uh, in, in terms of orthodoxy. And so, uh, so yes, I think that just all round, I think, although he's written a lot and he's clearly very, inter very yeah. clever in, in, in what he writes, I think there are problems mm -hmm. there. And, uh, and I think this book, of course, some say that he should have just said, look, I, I wrote that when I was in my 30s. I, I wouldn't write it now. But in fact, he's doubled down and, uh, and thinks it's, uh, it's a good work and, and still stands by it. Francis intends for Archbishop Fernandez, and this is interesting, to not focus on sex abuse tracking and prosecution of those cases across the Church Universal, despite the fact that the former CDF took up sex abuse cases and laicization of priests. Given that new reality, advocacy groups for the abused are already up in arms about this appointment, fearing that dealing with sex abuse allegations will no longer be a priority. What are you hearing? And uh, the dicastery does have a sub-office that will, I, I suppose, continue to deal with these abuse cases, but the Pope seems to be cutting Fernandez, the prefect, out of that equation. And I don't know why. Yes. Well, I think he probably feels he's not not able to do it. He's not sort of a suitable candidate to do that sort of, sort of work. There is also... Uh, a problem of him handling an abuse case back in in Argentina, which his arch, which his diocese denies. They say that he handled it correctly, but but there were some, and it was mm -hmm. also carried on the wire. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that's curious. I, I was just, I'm stunned. I mean, I this, saying. you know, uh, I, I don't think Cardinal Ratzinger considered himself an expert on, you know, uh, sexual abuse or, or or grooming of, you know, uh, minors or religious, yeah. and yet it was part of protecting. The, the 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 priesthood protecting the church. So you had to investigate these cases and laicize them. But I guess they now have a different bureaucratic apparatus to care for this, maybe. Maybe that's the, the math here. Remarkably, without announcement, Ed, I have to talk to you about this. Pope Francis yes. met this week with former U.S. President Bill Clinton. And in the delegation was the chair of Open Society Foundations, Alex Soros. Now, he's the son of George Soros, the founder of, of that group. And uh, as viewers might know, open society is associated with um, agencies and groups that fund legalized abortion and other political and social activities all over the world. What do you make of this meeting? And how was time found on the papal calendar for this, but not for the Dubia Cardinals or Cardinal Zen, for instance? Right. It's very odd. And I think the Pope is supposed to be on holiday. I mean, he's not having any, I think the audiences have now been cancelled. There was no weekly general audience yesterday, uh, but he mm -hmm. did have time to meet, meet this group. And um, yes, it's a mystery. And of course, the Vatican was very uh, quiet about it. They didn't, they didn't pre-announce it. Unusually, we didn't get any mm -hmm. pre-announcement about it. We just heard about it on Vatican News mm -hmm. later on yesterday evening and so yes yeah. it's a mystery and i think um but it's it's kind of consistent with the way he does meet 
people of power and he does seem to like to be part of these these groups these power structures whether it's to influence them i don't know we don't know what he said in this meeting uh, but usually these meetings don't come out with anyone saying oh he tried to you know uh, convert me or tried to uh, introduce me to the faith or change my ideas in the faith in fact when he met president biden of course in 2021 he called him a good catholic in, or catholic a good standing yeah. so so we have that we have that problem and uh, and yet he does like these these events and and the sort of the photo opportunities if you like before we go, the list of participants in the upcoming Synod on Synodality is expected to be released this week uh, by Secretary General Carlo Maria Grec. What do you expect to see there? Any surprises or do we sort of know the direction of this Synod? Well, I think a lot of the participants, as usual with the synods, I think with their still being chosen by the bishops' conference, I believe still uh, select the synod fathers, so so those will be on the list. Uh, but it will be interesting to see who the others are and who they choose, because often in the past they've they've been accused of stacking the deck and and choosing people who are going to steer the synods in a certain direction. And we'll have to look at the backgrounds of some of these participants to see if that's what they intend to do and mm -hmm. because that usually gives a good indication that that's that's what they have in mind we'll be keeping our eye on that ed penton thank you for being with us the next pope the leading cardinal candidates by ed penton is available at bookstores everywhere and his fine column by the way on uh archbishop fernandez some new material ed has dug up is at the national catholic register ed thank you for being here thank you raymond I now want to go to theologian and former head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller. He joins us from EWTN Studios in Rome. Your Eminence, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Um, I thought as a former prefect of this office, I'd love to get your reflections on the appointment of Archbishop Fernandez as head of this dicastery, now called the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Uh, you have read the Pope's letter to his new prefect, and there seems to be a shift in the focus of priorities. I want to read you what the Pope writes. He says, The dicastery over which you will preside in other times came to use immoral methods. Those were times when rather than promoting theological knowledge, possible doctrinal errors were pursued. End quote. What do you make of that statement? Was the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, either during your tenure or that of Cardinal Ratzinger, engaged in immorality? I don't think so. The Pope is speaking uh, from former times, 500, 500 years ago, with other times, and this is, uh, theologians and historians has to um, judge about these uh, times to interpret. interpret. But in the, the newer times, uh, beginning with the Second Vatican Council, uh, this uh, congregation was shaped uh, in a new form, in a new way. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was the uh, most important uh, prefect of this congregation. And I think we cannot make a turn against him. 
uh, and the congregation doesn't need a, a new uh, understanding because it's collaborating with the primate of the Pope, his magisterium, his teaching office, and that has not changed. And therefore, the cooperation, collaboration from this uh, congregation or dicastery is uh, defined by uh, the mission of uh, the Pope. And this uh, definition is given by Jesus himself and uh, present in the dogma of the First and the Second Vatican Council. And therefore, it's, uh, for my opinion, it's not necessary uh, to shift it in this uh, way. It's, it's, it's what, not very clear what is uh, that here. Surely the Pope is uh, free mm. in his appointments, uh, personal appointments, but uh, everybody can criticize it because it's not an infallible uh, decision, nothing to do mm -hmm. with the faith himself, with himself itself. Yeah. And uh, uh, Victor Fernandez criticized also me uh, publicly as uh, appointed a prefect of uh, Pope Benedict and uh, and uh, Fra Francis, and and therefore everybody is free to um, give his uh, comments uh, to this uh, mm -hmm. new situation to the person, and uh, especially about the special mission of this uh, congregation yeah. with this uh, long history. Yeah, it does seem to have a new focus here. And I want to, to speak to that. In an interview with Info Vaticana, just after his appointment, Archbishop Fernandez talks about marriage that is, quote, in the strict sense, only between a man and a woman. And that rites of blessings or other unions that could cause confusion about this traditional understanding should be avoided. But then he goes on to say this, quote, Now, if a blessing is given in such a way that it does not cause that confusion, it, ha it will have to be analyzed and confirmed. Mm -hmm. The doctrine does not change because it is ultimately the unfathomable, marvelous, unchanging mystery of the Trinity expressed in Christ. Another thing is our understanding of that doctrine, and that, in fact, has changed and will continue to change. That's why De Verbum says, for example, that the work of exegetes can mature the opinion of the Church, end quote. Your Eminence, what do you make of this idea that understanding of the development of doctrine, even the blessings of same-sex couples can occur? What's being said here? I think we must uh, absolutely distinguish between the uh, revealed faith, the doctrine of the apostles, and uh, the teaching of Jesus himself. He is a word who become uh, flesh, and he is the fullness of the self-revelation of God. And all was it is belonging to the revealed truth and the faith and the moral is given once and forever in Jesus Christ, and we cannot change it, uh, not theoretically or practically. And it's absolutely clear that the marriage, the sacrament of marriage, uh, consists in the one man and one uh, woman, and there is no blessing uh, possible for other forms of sexual uh, behavior. We can bless uh, single persons and also sinners to convert, uh, but we cannot uh, evoke uh, the impression 
that there is a certain equality uh, that that is uh, outside of the legitimate marriage is possible a sexual relation according to the holy scripture and all the understanding of the church and its magisterium this is a, a great sin and we must uh, convert us and we must go to confession as uh, good Catholics and uh, repent our uh, sins and to begin a new life and we cannot uh, mix um, the, the, the growing of the theological understanding and the history of the dogma and the faith of the church today is the same as the the faith of the church in the first century. You know, we must be um, true and, and present to the doctrine of the apostles in which this form in the Holy Scripture and the apostolic yeah. tradition. There is uh, given the, the completeness of the revelation. Your, your Eminence, can a pope or a Vatican dicastery reinterpret or develop the church's opinion about settled doctrine? It is not possible, but because uh, the Pope or the bishops, uh, the episcopate or ecumenical council, they are not the masters. They don't receive a new revelation, but they have only the custodes uh, to conserve and they are guardians of uh, the revelation. And if we read uh, Dei Verbum number 10, there is given the relation between the revelation once and forever um, given in Jesus Christ in the form of the Holy Scripture and in the apostolic tradition. And there is that the magisterium, the teaching office of the church is not above the word of God, but serves him and, and never they will... Um, teach uh, a contradictory or contradictory mm. or um, uh, form because it is not a development but is a destruction of the revelation. And there I think mm. then behind is a, f a wrong understanding or deficient understanding of what is the Catholic theology. And they cannot, um, we have a uh, modernist ag agenda and now uh, the Pope uh, is one of us and therefore we uh, take the opportunity for uh, shifting uh, the Catholic uh, doctrine in another uh, direction and, and the, uh, to the Pope and the Ecumenical Council or Synods is not given this authority. Cardinal Mueller, I, I have to uh, ask you about this. I spoke a bit earlier to Edward Penton of the National Catholic Register. His latest column features an interview with you where you say the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith kept a file on Archbishop Fernandez warning about his lack of theological orthodoxy. Now, I know this is, was in relation to when uh, then Cardinal Bregoglio, now Pope Francis, put forward Fernandez's name as head of the Catholic University in Argentina, and there was some question about his beliefs or his teachings. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give us any insight on what the concerns might have been? I haven't seen this file. It was uh, long before my time. But surely in the times of Cardinal Ratzinger, there was very serious questions to him. 
and I think uh, the Cardinal Ratzinger was theologically so competent and he did knew uh, what he uh, did and what was to done and we cannot mm -hmm. criticize it just was his office uh, to make all this mm -hmm. uh, investigation and, and the proofs uh, and um, it's not now the time to make vengeance and to uh, overthrow the times of Ratzinger, make a damnatio memor memoriae, damnation of his uh, memory uh, without any doubt. Um, Cardinal Ratzinger as prefect was uh, one of the very competent, competentest persons uh, in this, uh, this office and as pope uh, he didn't need uh, no ghostwriter. Uh, Your Eminence, before I let you go, uh, I did want to get your, your take on something as you were talking that it just brought to mind. During your tenure at the CDF, during Cardinal Ratzinger's, there was a focus on confirming and protecting the doctrine of faith. It seems the new mission of this congregation is now to invite theological inquiry and open up doctrines that were established and reaffirmed over many centuries. Is that what you see here? Mm. That cannot be the task of the papal magisterium uh, and uh, nevertheless of, of this congregation uh, to reopen the discussion about uh, the defined uh, the definitions of, of the faith in the past, this is not a theological academy or a talk show, show where everybody can express his uh, opinion, but uh, the mission is to, um, to protect, to promote and to protect the revealed faith. And we are not... Uh, saved by uh, theories of, of modern or conservative uh, theologians. Uh, our faith is not a theory. We can change and we cannot uh, mm. change the church in a civil religion or uh, to the demandings uh, of, of the people of the Forbes list, of the super-rich people. But we have to follow Jesus Christ, the church is not uh, the property of uh, Pius XII or, or John Paul II mm -hmm. or Francis or Benedict. This is the Church of Jesus Christ. And St. Peter is only the first of the apostles. And he has to follow Jesus Christ and have to make us all to follow in the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Your Eminence, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, I thank you for being here. And though we don't have a talk show of the doctrine of faith, if I did, you would be hosting it every week. <laughs> thank you for being here. Thank you very much. <laughs> the U.S.-Mexico border continues to see record numbers of migrants crossing into the United States. Now, most are coming through Mexico from Central and South America. But Chinese migrants are also entering the U.S. in large numbers. Are all of these migrants entering the U.S. to find a better way of life for themselves or their family, or might something else be at play? Joining me now, 
is Asian affairs expert and author Gordon Chang. Gordon, thank you for being here. Um, I, I, you've been tracking this story at the southern border when very few are paying attention. Uh, tell me about this disturbing picture that you're seeing there. What's happening with Chinese migration at the U.S. border, and why are we seeing such an increase, do you think? Yeah, there's two stories here. One of them is the just unprecedented surge of Chinese migrants into the United States. And, and that really is mm -hmm. the result of distress inside China. So, for instance, we saw in the first five months of the current federal fiscal year, the number of migrants from China who were apprehended by U.S. Customs and Border Protection was more than double that was apprehended in all of the preceding uh, federal year. The, the, what's going on here is just um, something that, that we're, we're just not prepared for. But the other story is ominous, and that is we are seeing packs of Chinese males in groups between 5 and 15, um, military age, mm. unattached to family groups who are pretending not to speak English. Now, Customs and Border Protection has been able to find that some of these males actually have known connections to the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army. Michael Yan has been at the Darien Gap. That's the uh, 70 or so miles of jungle that separates right. Colombia and, and Panama, from which most of these migrants have to cross. And he is extremely concerned because he is he can he's a um, special forces uh, former uh, of his own. Um, and he can recognize yeah. military when he sees it. And, and so let's let's go through this. Why are so many Chinese, do you think? Are they leaving China and entering through Mexico? What's driving this? And is this is this a, a, a recolonization, if you will? Are they deploying troops or potential troops into the mainland of the United States? Is that what you think? Um, on your second question, the answer is definitely yes. I think what we are seeing wow. are saboteurs who will cook up with existing sleeper agents, um, with people in the consulate. And what we'll see on the first day of a war in Asia is that the United States homeland will be hit. Um, they'll be taking down our grid, poisoning our water, assassinating officials, starting wildfires, uh, detonating bombs in shopping centers. So Americans are going to be involved in this war, all Americans. And this also means the first real sustained attack and war on American soil since 1812. Now, the first question, um, many of these migrants go to Ecuador because they allow uh, visa-free entry for the Chinese, and then they make their way up mm. through um, Latin and uh, through South America and, and Central America into the United States. Some of them are more wealthy. They can fly directly into Mexico. And there um, mm -hmm. we are seeing, you know, just whether they come in through Ecuador or whether they come in through Mexico, um, they're actually middle class Chinese because they can afford to pay the Mexican cartels $35,000 a head to be smuggled into America. Uh, Gordon, uh, how many People's Liberation Army personnel could be inside the United States right now. And does that tell us anything about a timeline the Chinese might have for when they might activate these troops? Yeah, I think we're talking in the thousands, um, but whatever, the, and some people say 5,000, some people say 10,000, um, but whatever the number is, it's growing by the day. And it's not just the migrants, it's people who are working for, for instance, Chinese state banks, Chinese enterprises, in the mm. consulates, 
and then just the uh, sleeper agents. So this is a number in the thousands. Um, and we have a, a Biden administration right. that is not tracking these Chinese migrants who are known to have Chinese military connections once they come across the border. Um, so really what we're seeing, um, just imagine what 9-11 would have been like if um, you know, Osama bin Laden had many more agents in the United States at that time. Well, the, Gordon, this is why that story the Wall Street Journal reported a few weeks ago, that the American media just kind of looked the other way, about the Chinese setting up a military training camp and a satellite spy network in Cuba. And everybody just looks the other way. You pair that with troops already on the ground. What are we looking at here? And, and with the land purchases, those acres of land purchases, Chinese corporations have been gobbling up in the United States. What are we missing here? Well, one of them is, is that um, the Cuban agents could easily work with the Chinese agents on our soil for all sorts of acts of sabotage. Um, and, and that's where the linkup is. You know, with regard to those Wall Street Journal stories about Chinese presence in Cuba, um, China has had four, it maintains now four listening posts in Cuba directed against the United States. They're at Lourdes, which is the big Soviet listening post. I think it was the largest Soviet mm -hmm. listening post outside the Soviet Union. But they're also at Bayoukal and Santiago de Cuba. The Wall Street Journal talks about a fourth location. I don't know where that is. But if you pair that up with the training facility, quote unquote, that China wants to establish, that could very well house all sorts of types of missiles, um, you know, missiles to take down planes across the United States, uh, missiles to hit our ships as they sortie out to Asia, um, and, of course, uh, short and intermediate range ballistic missiles carrying nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of things that could occur at those facilities. Frightening. Gordon, I, I want to move on to something else here. For years, we've been hearing about the sinicization of religion in China, meaning the CCP forces the accepted religions within mainland China to adopt the style, language, ideology of Chinese communism, even working uh, Chinese communist figures into the narrative of the scriptures, let's say. Now it seems they intend to export this perverted, cyanized Christianity outside the country. A conference was held at the end of June outlining how they might promote this hybrid throughout the world. What do you make of this? And will it be successful? Is there a way to do this? Yeah, um, this is one of the most fascinating stories in the world today. Um, inside China, um, there is an attempt to eliminate religion. Now, there are five officially recognized religions, and two of them are Christian. Um, and in those uh, Christian uh, churches that are sort of called the patriotic churches, um, images mm -hmm. of Jesus are being removed. They're being replaced with those of Xi Jinping. And instead of uh, Christian um, teaching, they're teaching um, Xi Jinping thought. Um, in, in addition to this, um, you have the unofficial, the house churches, um, which number of uh, adherents number in the tens of millions maybe even more. Um, and this, the Communist Party cannot control. Um, but, you know, with regard to your question, yes, they would like to export their brand of Christianity to eliminate Christianity. Mm -hmm. And to destabilize and fracture the Christian world, out, even outside of China. 
Yes, um, that is a United Front Work Department tactic. Um, the U.S. Mm. Uh, the United Front Work Department is um, part of the Communist Party. It is meant to interact with so-called patriotic forces outside of China, and it's meant to subvert um, free societies like ours. Um, so the effort wow. to target religion outside China will be a communist party, not a Chinese central government, but a communist party effort with the United Front Work Department leading the way. Gordon, the U.S. State Department's annual report on international religious freedom was released in May, indicating again China's communist government has significantly and broadly clamped down on religious freedom in the past year. A number of people imprisoned for their beliefs, estimated to be in the thousands, as many as 10,000. Now the Chinese foreign ministry continues making statements condemning things like Islamophobia, the targeting of religious beliefs, and, quote, incitement of clashes between cultures. Instead, China's talking about promoting Xi Jinping's Global Civilization Initiative. Can you explain that to the audience and this emphasis on inter-civilization exchanges and dialogue? What does all that mean? The ultimate goal is to establish worldwide Chinese rule, not domination, but rule, um, because Xi Jinping has been mm. pushing the notion of Tianxia, that Chinese rulers not only have the mandate of heaven to rule Tianxia or all under heaven, but are actually compelled by mm. heaven to do so. Um, China has these sort of bland, gauzy type um, initiatives. You've heard, you know, you mentioned one of them, the Global Civilization Initiative. Mm -hmm. It's a global security yeah. initiative, a global development initiative. But really what we're all talking about is China um, adopting the language of others, um, but attempting to subvert everybody else. This is Xi Jinping's ambitions. And by the way, he, he believes not only does he have the right and obligation to rule the entire planet Earth, um, but now he is, um, his officials are talking about ruling the moon and Mars as part of the People's Republic of China. Amazing. Well, you know, you know what uh, strikes me, Gordon, just as you, as you were speaking, tying this into the conversations we were having earlier. As the Catholic faith and so much of Western Christianity relaxes and lets go of all mandates from heaven, all supernatural belief, uh, the, as their doctrine becomes fuzzy and loose, China and Xi Jinping are hardening their not only mandates from heaven, but their, their approach and their deliberate steps in the world. It's rather remarkable to see the contrast here. We'll see who wins out in the end. But if I were a betting man, well, I won't tell you where I'd put my money. But earlier this week, the U.N. Human Rights Council intervened on behalf of the family of Jimmy Lai when it halted China's attempt to silence testimony from Jimmy's son, Sebastian. Uh, what do you know about Jimmy Lai's current condition, his situation in prison? And can the U.N. be depended on to support and fight for this incredible 75-year-old freedom fighter's release? Well, Jimmy Lai, who is Catholic, is in jail in Hong Kong. Um, there have been numerous prosecutions mm -hmm. against him, including under the new national security law of China, which was imposed in 2020 on Hong Kong. Uh, Jimmy prays the rosary every day with his wife because um, he's allowed a phone call to do that. You know, as you point out, Sebastian has been raising this issue, not only at the U.N., but uh, earlier with the United States um, at a U.N. session, as you pointed out. Um, while Sebastian was talking, the Chinese interrupted him. 
Um, they really want to go after Jimmy because Jimmy is a signal of defiance. And earlier you were talking about who's going to win, um, the Chinese communist or, or the yeah. faith. Um, it's going to be faith because faith is something that the Communist Party cannot deal with, even inside China. Because we mentioned the unofficial churches um, numbers, uh, probably uh, greater than that of the Communist Party membership. And Christians, mm -hmm. especially in the unofficial churches, have uh, a faith that is vibrant, much more vibrant than anybody's faith in communism in China. So faith wins, Raymond, but it's going to be a struggle wow. and there are going to be many martyrs. Well, I'm, I'm happy to leave it on that hopeful note, Gordon, and uh, I agree with you. I think we have to continue to raise the awareness about the state of these people of deep faith in China and what they're up against and what the intentions are for these smiling diplomats we see all over the United States and the Western world. Gordon Chang, thank you for being here. And you can follow Gordon on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Thank you. Christians are being persecuted around the world in record numbers, and that persecution is making its way west. What's driving it, and what can we do about it? Joining me to discuss is the Rome Bureau Chief for Breitbart and author of the new book, The Coming Christian Persecution, Why Things Are Getting Worse and What You Can Do About It. Please welcome Thomas Williams back to the program. Tom, thank you for being here. I want to start with the book uh, where you write that Christian persecution reached an unprecedented level at the end of 2020 when one in eight Christians experienced persecution and discrimination on average. Some 345 Christians are murdered around the globe each month because of their beliefs. And Pew Research found that Christians undergo harassment in 145 out of the 198 countries in the world, a significant higher number than just about any other single religion. Which, which countries do you think are the most dangerous to be a Christian today, and why are we seeing Christians targeted there? Well, this is really kind of the sleeper story of the decade, Raymond. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that because th these are these st statistics are real, and it's something that most people are simply unaware of. Uh, and to give you one example, you're asking where it's particularly dangerous to be a Christian. Let's take the example of Nigeria, where it is most likely, if you're a Christian, that you will actually mm. be killed for your faith. Uh, this is something that there are deaths on a weekly basis in Nigeria, so much so that it's not even reported by news outlets anymore because it's just so commonplace. And in this case, it's driven, as we know, by is Islamic extremism, the radical Islamic. There's the Boko Haram movement up in the north. You've got the Fulani raiders in, in what they call the middle belt in Nigeria. But it's extraordinarily dangerous. The, the, there are attacks with machetes and uh, buildings and villages. Entire villages are torched when it's known that Christians live there. It's something that is targeting specifically people who share a Christian belief. Mm. Many Christians, especially those living in the U.S. and Western Europe, would not see themselves, Thomas, persecuted or discriminated against. What would you say to them? What are they missing here? Well, I think there are two things, Raymond. One is we have to stand shoulder, and shoulder, shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters around the world who actually are suffering violent and aggressive persecution. Secondly, um, at least from my vantage point, it's even more disturbing what I see happening in the West, where the attitude toward Christians is evolving so quickly at such an accelerated pace that now Christians who used to be kind of the backbone of society was looked upon as a good thing to be a Christian. Now Christians are often mm -hmm. 
tarred as bigots, as homophobes, as people who are closed-minded, intolerant, narrow-minded, obscurantists, all these different things we hear flung at Christians just because we believe in Jesus Christ and believe in the moral teaching of the Bible. I want to look at Europe for a moment. Uh, We have seen in the past several years, uh, I've seen it myself, I know you have, in in France, Germany, recently in northern Italy, churches being desecrated and even destroyed. Who is doing this and why do we not hear more about these attacks in the media or an outcry from the Christians in those countries? They seem to just kind of be very blasé about this destruction happening in their own neighborhoods, in their own communities. Well, that's interesting because the government actually has a policy. Take the example of France. They have a policy to not reveal the motivations behind these attacks. They don't want you to know what is causing them. And so there's a lot of speculation. We know that in a number of cases uh, there is, again, Muslim extremism. Uh, In the the case of profanation and, and desecration, both of churches and of burial grounds, of cemeteries. But also, there's a radical form of secularism uh, that really sees religion and Christianity in particular as really an obstacle to progress, an obstacle to the agenda that they wish to promote. And so a lot of the aggression against Christians is also coming from that sector. Hmm. I want to move on to something that I, I read recently from Bob Fu. Now, he's president of a watchdog group, China Aid. He's a convert to Christianity. He was imprisoned in China for leading an underground house church and not registering with the Chinese Patriotic Association. In a recent interview, he said he was seeing the same tactics in Western nations that the Chinese Communist Party uses to crack down on churches and that sometimes... The tactics used were straight out of the Chinese Communist playbook. He said, quote, the U.S. is increasingly exhibiting dictatorial attitudes, both culturally and politically, by censoring speech, enforcing woke culture, and not tolerating dissent. I saw the governor of California basically prescribe and order the church to shut down and say not only when they can worship, but how. The ways that he threatened to punish those churches and pastors sometimes were word for word exactly the same as the CCP is using against the Chinese churches, end quote. Your reaction to that uh, connection, Tom? Well, I find it incredibly disturbing, but I think Bob Fu is exactly right. Uh, I read his stuff, too, and I also follow very closely what's happening with the churches in China. Uh, It's been called an Orwellian surveillance state because they have cameras put up in churches. They now have an app, a government app, that you need to register with, and you need to get permission every single time you want to go to church. There's no blanket permissions. It has to be every time. So they know what church you're attending, how often you go, and they also know the content of what is being preached, and they make sure that it has to cohere with the, the, the Maoist ideology uh, behind the Communist Party there. We're seeing the same thing in the United States in the sense that there have been all these revelations in recent weeks about the FBI first targeting uh, yeah. pro-life protesters. Secondly, uh, that, that document about Latin mass goers as somehow being likely to be uh, white supremacists and tied to Christian nationalism. And, and so, you know, giving them a right to also plant listeners, plant people, agents dressed undercover in churches to listen to what is being preached. Exactly the same thing we see in China.
Yeah. Uh, Tom, you're the Rome correspondent for Breitbart. You've covered the Vatican for several years. I want to talk for a moment about that Vatican-China deal, which we've reported on extensively. Why would the Vatican make a deal with communists rather than call them out for the suffering they inflict on persecuted Christians, especially those in, in the Catholic flock? And beyond China, why did you not hear more from the Holy See on this topic of persecuted Christians globally? Well, this is this is an enormous problem, as you know, and I, I'm sure I, I share I share in your evaluation of what the Vatican has done in this case, and I think it's atrocious. I think you really have thrown the very faithful Catholics in China that you know six million to twelve million number of underground mm -hmm. Catholics who have always been faithful to Rome. And suddenly they no longer have the support of the Holy See. And, I, and it's absolutely terrible. And it's leaving many of them completely out in the cold because now it looks like they're obstinate mm. because they don't want to join the Catholic Patriotic Association, which is government run and which has always been hostile to, to, to Rome. They consider themselves an independent yeah. church. So I think... Uh, you know, the motivations behind it, if we want to listen and just take uh, the Vatican at its word, it's this idea of culture of encounter and dialogue. It's better to be sitting at a table than, you know, standing, looking at each other from across the room. Uh, but the problem is what we've seen since 2018 when this agreement was first signed, things have actually gotten worse, not better for Christians in China. Mm. There is more persecution, there's more abuse, and there's more surveillance going on of everything that's happening. Yeah, well, when you're seated at a table where they're slaughtering the people that are in your flock, that's not a table you probably should be sitting at. But uh, just to finish up, Tom, as a follow-up, why the reluctance, do you think, uh, on the Vatican's part for speaking out of the, about these global atrocities of persecution happening, whether it be in the Middle East or in China or in other parts of the world? Well, I think that the Pope himself... Uh, he reports on and he criticizes certain abuses, and then he is silent about others. And it really depends on what his relationship is with the people behind it. I think that's unfortunately the truth of it. For example, back in 2016, 2017, when there were these cases of slaughters by uh, the Islamic State and others, that was a time when the Pope was saying there's no such thing as uh, Muslim persecution. This is not something that Muslim terror groups do not exist. He was saying, if we talk about that, then we mm. have to admit that there are Christian terror groups and we're just as bad as they are. There are certain things he doesn't want to acknowledge because he doesn't want to offend those particular groups. China is another great example of that. He has not even been willing to call out yeah. the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang region there, simply because he is unwilling uh, to do anything that could irritate the Chinese and make them stand up from the table when he's desperately looking for diplomatic mm. relations there. In your book, you write that things will get worse before they get better. And you say, quote, as the number of those who hate Christians or hold them in contempt is growing, Christianity in the West is flagging and the will to speak out against Christian persecution or even acknowledge its existence is waning. And though the enemies of Christ, radical Islam, virulent secularism, atheistic communism grow stronger every day, the determination to resist them is flagging. Why do you think it's flagging, Tom? And you point out that radical secularism is well, far a far greater threat in the West than, say, radical Islam. 
Absolutely. That's exactly the way it is. That's the central thesis of this book, is that we're seeing right now a perfect storm of Christian persecution, because the drivers of persecution, whether it's Hindu nationalism in India, whether it's radical Islam, whether it's this growing, very, very hostile form of secularism in the West, these are all getting stronger by the day. And the will to resist, and especially uh, the appreciation for religious freedom as the first freedom, as the most important of human rights, uh, is something that is dwindling and dying. Because we see, for example, in the West, we see the LGBT lobby, we see uh, the, the abortion lobby, we see groups that do not want Christians to be able to speak about biblical morality because they find it offensive to the agenda that they are trying to push. And so I think that you're seeing, and, and Christians themselves are finding themselves, you know, weakened, and they don't want to speak out, and they don't want to this ostracization that they're facing, and so they prefer to, to accommodate. There's also been a rise in the so-called nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, uh, the non-affiliated, non-religious people in the United States. Uh, they're not, they now make up over a quarter of the population, 28 percent in 2021. What effect do the nuns have on acceptance of traditional Christian values and appreciation of the religious liberty you just mentioned? Well, I think the nuns, unfortunately, religious liberty becomes less important for them than other basic liberties. They see churches and they see Christianity in general as just another voluntary association with no particular status uh, deserving any you know, care that is the, the founding fathers believe that it should have. I mean, I find it appalling. We're a nation that's founded on religious freedom, where we have the, the pilgrims. We call them pilgrims because they came in search of a place where they could worship God freely and practice their faith uh, in, in a tolerant situation. And now we have the West turning in on itself, and particularly in the United States, which has always been a very, very religious people, we're finding it less and less yeah. so. I saw when that number of nuns crossed over the one-quarter mark, that's extremely disturbing, because these are people with no, yeah, not well, only no affiliation, but no appreciation often. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the patterns, Tom, as you have for this book, uh, when you look at the patterns of Christian persecution, how does it evolve and how is it made acceptable to the populace? Well, I think the way it evolves is you have to demonize a group before you can persecute them. You have to make them look bad. You have to make them look like the enemy. So you have cases where the, where uh, Christians are more and more called narrow-minded, bigoted, hateful, uh, white supremacists, Christian nationalists, theocrats, all these different slurs used against Christians so mm -hmm. that ordinary people who didn't really care one way or the other before start seeing Christians as the enemy, as someone who's really getting in the way of a free America the way they understand it. That's always the first step, because that then allows you to become more aggressive, to become more uh, marginalizing and more ostracizing in your treatment of Christians to begin with. And that discrimination then easily passes on to something worse. Very good. We will leave it there. The coming Christian persecution, why things are getting worse and how to prepare for what is to come by Tom Williams is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Tom, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Raymond. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.